insights, unpredictable conversations, encouragement for your day. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Welcome back. <clears throat> Excuse me. Welcome back. And that phone number to dial to be on the air is 888-914-9149. Sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters, 888-914-9149. So I chatted with a young lady in California before the break. We didn't have quite enough time for me to answer her question, or I really more respond to her point. She was uh, talking about the Holy Father, um, Pope Francis, and his decisive turning away from the traditional Latin Mass. And among the points that she made, she said that in her experience, she had seen people say that the Mass is not valid unless it's celebrated in Latin. And I, of course, agreed with her that's not true. Um, Jesus said the first Mass, and he didn't say it in Latin. Um, He said it in Aramaic, probably with a heavy dose of Hebrew involved as well. But in any case, it wasn't the traditional Latin Mass. And so her way of looking at it was that that the Holy Father is being prudent by moving in the direction of, in essence, for all intents and purposes, making the traditional Latin Mass as unavailable as possible in order to, and these are my words, not hers, but this is how I would restate what she said, in order to quell or tamp down this notion that the Mass is not valid unless it's celebrated in Latin. Now, I was just in the cusp of explaining what I thought about this, and then we ran out of time. So just quickly, number one, I pointed out that I too, I mean, I've I've been around a while, and I've met many people who love the traditional Latin Mass. I happen to be one of them. I love the traditional Latin Mass. Nancy and I, for what it's worth, just putting my cards on the table— we are registered parishioners and have been for many years at um, a parish in our diocese where there is no Latin Mass. It's a beautiful, very reverent, uh, very traditional new rite of the Mass, celebrated by Dominican friars, and we love it there and we appreciate it, and that's where we go. Now, I, I had the opportunity as a child to serve at the traditional Latin Mass for several years running because I attended the Mission San Juan Capistrano Grammar School. In, in Southern California. And Pope Paul VI had given an indult to pastors of parishes at that time, permitting them to continue using the traditional rites of the sacraments. If they were above a certain age, they were, you might say, dispensed from the requirement to change over to the new rite of the Mass. And it just so happens that the pastor of that parish, Monsignor Vincent Lloyd Russell, he was above the age, so he that's what he did. And so all the sacraments of the parish were in the traditional rite. And the low mass that I served as an altar boy every day before school was the traditional Latin mass that would have been recognizable to anybody for the prior, let's say, 1,500 years, roughly. So I grew up with that daily. And on Sundays, my family went to the local parish in our diocese, and it was the happy, clappy new mass. And I mean happy clappy. Felt banners, guitars, very, very different from the traditional Mass that I served at during weekdays at the mission. So I say that not, you know, not for any other reason than just to say, here's some context that I bring with me to this conversation. And so that was in the, what would that have been, late 60s, early 70s. And I grew up with what I regard to be a healthy reverence for both forms of the Mass, 
personally, I think aesthetically, the precision of the prayers, the aesthetic beauty of the traditional Mass is superior. But that's a subjective way of looking at it. Um, other people who are not familiar with the traditional Mass, they don't find it interesting, or maybe they've never experienced it. But I've noticed that many people who do, and quite a few young people especially, they love it. They gravitate toward it. They like the reverence. They like the stillness. These are some things that are different from the new rite of the Mass. So all of this is leading up to a point I want to make, and that is very, very few people say that the Mass is only valid if it's celebrated in Latin. And Yanessa's question had to, or her comment really had to do with the, the idea or the perception that Pope Francis, in his motu proprio, in essence abrogating, for all intents and purposes, the traditional Mass, was a way of trying to, to diminish or hopefully even um, stamp out. She didn't use that word, that's what I'm saying people who hold that view. I would assert that the vast majority of people who love the traditional Latin Mass don't hold that view. They recognize the validity of the new Mass. They may even appreciate the new Mass, like I do. I mean, I'm an example of that. Um, I don't hate Vatican II. I don't think most people who, who love the traditional Mass hate Vatican II. For that matter, very few of them nowadays, anyway, have ever read any of the documents of Vatican II. Um, they may be uh, disappointed by or antagonized by, in some cases, the the relative casualness that sort of entered into the Catholic Church in liturgical matters compared to how it was before. But that's, again, that's a matter we can discuss that people of good faith can hold different views on that. I think that the way to look at this is, as I was saying earlier, Pope Benedict XVI, I believe, was very wise in his recognition that the traditional Latin Mass has its proper place within the life of the Church. Keep in mind, he was at Vatican II as, as Father Joseph Ratzinger. He was a paratus, an expert in advising one of the German bishops who was at Vatican II. So he was deeply, deeply familiar with the reform of the liturgy and all those things that went in. And he pointed out that we should still maintain in some rightful way, rightful place, the traditional Latin Mass. And I think he was wise and prudent to write his motu proprio. Now, it wasn't well received in many quarters, and there were some people who really hate the Latin Mass. They hate what it represents. They hate the fact that, you know, I've even heard some oddball comments like, well, that's just dragging the church backward and things like that, misguided ideas on this issue. Nonetheless, I think Pope Benedict was wise, and he had a great deal of foresight to see the future, and the traditional Latin Mass is part of the future. So the current Holy Father feels differently. He made the changes that he made. He's the Pope. He has the right to do that. He has the authority to do that, and he did that just like Pope Benedict XVI did what he did. So I simply propose the following point, and I'll leave it at that. Whether you're happy about the new posture toward the Latin Mass, which is, I would say, decidedly hostile, or if you're unhappy about that, just wait. Just wait a while. Because the people who were really antagonized and didn't like what Pope Benedict XVI had to say on the issue— all they had to do was wait for the next pope to come, and he reversed everything, much to their satisfaction. 
I don't think it's a stretch to say that a future pope may reverse it again. And it may be, okay, well, we're not doing that anymore. We're going to have the Latin Mass again. It could easily happen. And in the meantime, rather than fret and fume, and I'm not suggesting that Yanessa was fretting and fuming, although I do know that some people do, my advice would be just be a good Catholic. Love God, love your neighbor, read the Bible, pray the rosary, go to Mass, receive the sacraments, um, do all those things that the Lord in his grace and providence gives to you. Trust in Jesus, pray for the Pope, love the Church, be loyal, all those things, and everything's going to be okay. We don't need to we don't need to have these factions and fightings and things like that. And certainly, there's nothing that I can do about it. Um, the Lord is in charge, and I want to trust him. So that would be my advice, whether it's this issue or any other issue that might perturb people in the life of the church. You can take note of it. You can be unhappy. You can be whatever your reaction to it may be. But don't let it drive you into a faction or a splinter group or something like that. Just take the long view and do those things, and I think you'll find everything will be okay. So those are my thoughts. 888-914-9149. Let's go to Meredith now in Chicago. Hi, Meredith. Hi. Um, I'm calling to ask a question that I have been wondering about for a while, and I've mm -hmm. tried to find the answer on my own. And I just wanted to know, do you happen to know if um, canonizations are infallible or not? Well, there are two schools of thought on that, and the Church hasn't said definitively which one is the correct form. One says that, yes, those are extra, extraordinary exercises of papal infallibility when a pope formally canonizes a man or woman, boy or girl, because it gets to the heart of the Church's dogma on the intercession of saints. And that argument goes that according to the the way it's defined in Pastor Eternus, which is the, that's a Latin phrase, it means the eternal shepherd, it was at Vatican I when the parameters of the dogma of papal infallibility were promulgated, and that argument says that his referring to the Church or recommending to the Church that this person is worthy of veneration and is worthy of asking for their intercession in heaven, that that falls into that category. The other school of thought is that, no, it doesn't rise to the level of an extraordinary exercise of papal infallibility because it is not, it's not dealing with a matter of faith or morals. So the life of the person is not a dogmatic issue, and it's also not a moral issue one way or the other. So it's a different way of approaching the issue theologically. Now, for what it's worth, Meredith, I personally tended toward the former view for a long time. When I thought about it, I tended toward that view. But I think my view on this has moderated somewhat in, let's say, the last maybe 20 years or 30 years or so. And the reason for it is because, in, in my opinion, the Church has adopted a, a stance uh, or has adopted maybe a hastiness in canonizing saints. And it used to be that the canonization process took a very long time, could even take centuries before somebody would be canonized. And part of the reason for it was that the Church wanted to do its due diligence in such a meticulous way that somebody wouldn't wind up being canonized 
And then later on, you find out, uh uh-oh, we have a problem here because that person really turned out to not be a saint because of things that we uncovered or, you know, we now know that this person was living a double life, things like that. So the church's deliberation and the length of time that it typically took for somebody to be canonized, I think is a very good thing, and it's, it's a safeguard. Lately, however, in the last, say, 20 years, 30 years perhaps, the church has sort of adopted a hasty approach to this, in my view, that's how I would characterize it, and it seems unduly hasty, and with that comes the potential danger that somebody might hastily be declared a saint, and then we find out afterward, uh-oh, we sure didn't know about that kind of thing. Now, that hasn't happened, but I'm concerned that it could happen. And if it did happen, then that would strike directly at the the, the position that this is a, an act of formal, uh, it's a formal act of papal infallibility. So, I think in my own personal reflection on this issue, I have now sort of moved away from that first way of looking at it, and I look at it more in terms of it's not. And I think there's some good reasons to hold that view. But I I would say the jury's still out, and the Church hasn't said definitively one way or the other. Does that make sense, Meredith? Yeah, that does. And I held your view um, where I thought— that the canonizations, like that these men, women, children were definitely in heaven. I read about saints from the old and how fantastic they were. And it was really amazing. I mean, when you look them up, I mean, you just see how fantastic they are. And then you get to like 1960, 1950 onward. And I started looking up some of the canonized popes. And I was just like, what happened? You know, and so I was kind of like, these are the miracles. Like, this is a little weak. And it didn't make any sense to me. And so and then, of course, the person's own holiness. And it just kind of led me to question, well, if this person wasn't really that holy and to me, the miracles seem kind of lackluster. Like, what do you what do you do with that information? How do you compare the two or stuff comes out afterwards where it's like this person is a great saint? Yes. But they did a couple of things where I'm like, well, would a saint actually do that? Like, why would they do that? And then they're right. still canonized. It just didn't make a lot of sense. I know what you're saying. And, and I, I did actually talk about this, I don't know, a few weeks ago. And I gave as an example, uh, now Saint Pope Paul VI. Now, I was, you know, I was, how old was I? I was 18 when he died. So um, I don't really remember John the Twenty Third because he died when I was three. So the only pope I remember during my childhood was Pope Paul VI. And not just, you know, like anecdotally, well, what do you know about a pope from a distance like that? But also after doing some reading and researching on my own, I can honestly say that although he may have been a good man, there was nothing significant about him that in any way that he was renowned for holiness or for heroic virtue or, I mean, he obviously didn't die a martyr's death and, and there were a number of criticisms that could be leveled. But in any case, he was canonized so hastily that he gave rise to a theory, and I don't hold this theory per se, but some do, that the reason was, let's get all those popes who were associated with Vatican II canonized as a way to sort of, quote-unquote, canonize Vatican II, so we can make it beyond reproach 
because look, all the popes who are associated with Vatican II, they're canonized saints. Um, I don't know that that is a way to explain it, but it could give the impression that the haste nowadays is like, let's quickly get these, you know, canonizations through. Um, I don't think that that's actually the reason. But it's unfortunate if people look at this and say, oh, I wonder if that's why they're doing that. And I don't think it is. I think rather caution has has taken a back seat to enthusiasm. And I would rather see more caution than enthusiasm personally. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I've heard that theory as well. And I know a lot changed with Vatican II in terms of uh, the canonization process. So I, I don't know if they're related. I can see the point that people make when it comes to let's canonize these popes so we can say how great Vatican II is. I guess that's neither here or there. But I still think that if someone's going to be canonized, you would want that person to be like the best of the best, the holiest, like those yeah. people that we look up to. So You want yeah. to make sure well, that they really are saints. Yeah, I, I concur. I have to take a break, Meredith. But quickly, if I can leave you with a parting thought, I had the benefit on one of my many visits to Rome over the years to have a private discussion with Father Peter Gumbel, who was a Jesuit priest. He was the postulator for the cause of canonization for Pope Pius XII. And in one of my visits, he gave me like two hours, one-on-one. I was in his office in the Vatican, and... uh, he walked me through the process of canonization in minute detail. He gave me a history lesson. It was just incredible, the knowledge that this uh, very erudite Jesuit priest had. May he rest in peace. And so uh, I would say a good deal of my opinion of this issue that you're raising was formed by this one-on-one tutelage that I received from this priest who was right in the thick of it and knew it, backward and forward. And as I recall, although it's been many years now, my impression was that he too um, felt it was very wise to take your time for the church, to take her time in canonization processes so that, you know, wouldn't it be a horrible thing if Pope Pius Twelfth were canonized and then something really terrible were found out about him after the fact? Now, I don't believe that that's the case. I think Pope Pius Twelfth probably indeed was a very saintly man and is deserving of being canonized. But I would much rather that the Church take a few centuries to make that determination than to rush things. So those are my thoughts, and I appreciate the call. Thank you. We're going to come back with more right after this. This hour is sponsored by Christendom College's Free Principles Classes. Sign up for a free online class on Holy Scripture today at NewTestamentFoundations.com. Learn to read the Bible with the mind of the church at NewTestamentFoundations.com. Welcome back to the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Have a question? Give Patrick a call. 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Patrick Madrid on Relevant Radio. (laughs) Okay. We are back. Um, this is the Patrick Madrid Show. Thanks for listening. Let's go to Denise in St. John, Indiana. Good morning, Denise. I think I've been talking for a while, but um, I don't, you know, I don't mean to sound like I'm arguing, but mm-hmm. as far as Pope Paul VI goes, I was in Italy with my parents. My, my uh, dad's first cousin uh, was the head of uh, St. Mary Major uh, Basilica 
And we got private, you know, things and talked to him a whole bunch. And he told us that if the world only knew, because he was he was very, very close to this Pope, knew the suffering. Which Pope is that? Pope, the Pope you're, we're talking about has been canonized. It's what, Pope Paul the Sixth. Pope Paul the Sixth. okay. Yeah. So he knew Pope Paul the Sixth. Mm-hmm. Yes, and he just would tell us so many times how much he suffered. Now, I don't remember if it was physical, mental, I don't know what, but, you know, sometimes I agree. I think, whoa, that was a fast canonization. I, I agree with that. But I just wanted to point out that from personal experience, he just, in fact, in one private audience, my mom and my mom almost dropped her camera. He stopped and came up to our cousin and squeezed his hand. And my mother couldn't even take the picture because she couldn't believe she was that close to the Pope. So, you know, there's a part of me that says I can understand him more than others, but I don't know the miracles that were associated with him. I'm sorry to say, but um, that I just wanted to put, you know, get that out there that according to my cousin, he suffered greatly during his whole pontificate. Yeah, I have no reason to argue with that. I don't know the precise details, Denise, but what I was referring to in my commentary is that he was not known for being a, you know, a miracle worker or um, he was not known as a man that had extraordinary sanctity about him in a way that let's say Pope, or I'm sorry, St. Padre Pio was known for things like that. I mean, to use him as an example. So who knows what is the truth inside somebody's heart and mind and private sufferings and things like that. I mean, I believe it goes without saying that the average person in the public would not know about those details. And it may well be that he had some great sanctity. All I was saying is that he wasn't known for that. He, it wasn't something that attached to him where everybody just sort of revered him for being a very saintly person the way some saints have been. That was the point I was making. Right. And, I, and like I said, I just wanted to give a little input that, you know, St. Pio obviously, Padre Pio obviously suffered and people could see the blood and so on and so forth. But like I said, sometimes the suffering... Um, make someone holy too. And again, I oh, don't sure. know any details on miracles or whatever, but I thought I'd share that. Yeah. No, I'm glad you did, and that's a good point. But it's true of, of everybody. I mean, I don't know what personal sufferings you've gone through, nor would you know what personal sufferings I've gone through. And that's, to me, the genius of the traditional um, process of canonization is they take time to really sift through and to look to make sure uh, that this was the case. And I'll I'll give you just a a brief example. Uh, There was a a priest, his name was uh, Father Marcial Maciel. He was the founder of a religious order called the Legionaries of Christ. He fooled Pope John Paul II. This guy led a double life. In, In the exterior, he was seen to be somebody who was very holy and very wise and sagacious. And even Pope John Paul II was fooled by this guy. And, I mean, they had a lot of up-close-and-personal interactions with each other. So there's an example of he he was not the man he appeared to. And I'm not saying this in any way, in any way whatsoever about Pope Paul VI. There's no connection at all in what I'm saying here. I'm just using Maciel as an example of somebody who fooled a lot of people. And that's why I think, you know, 
it's important for the church to be deliberative and take its sweet time to really go through and find out if this person who we think might have been a saint really was. That's all. That's what I'm. That's what I'm proposing. And um, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Not that anybody takes my advice on this issue, but that's my way of looking at it. I appreciate it, Denise. Thanks. How about Joe now in Birmingham, Alabama? Good morning, Joe. Good morning. How are you doing, Patrick? I'm okay today. Thank you. I have suffered from uh, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder since I was a young man. Okay. My first experience when I was 19 years old, they call it, I've just recently found it, it's called hit and run OCD. Okay. And I also have uh, also have depression, and I was diagnosed with cancer in 2022, and I've been taking the medication for it. The medication stopped to work. The chemo oncology says going okay. through radiation and chemo causes that problem. Okay. So I'm going to test one drug. It didn't work too well. Working on another one called Paxil. But I'm trying to find peace. It's always on my mind. You know, mm-hmm. the first one happened when I was 19. Recently, coming back from church mm-hmm. from a Bible class, uh, it was a rainy, it was on Highway 98, raining, pouring down. Guy was walking in, facing traffic. Sometimes you get the little ruts of the traffic. And those close encounters make me think I hit someone. So that's the obsession. Okay, so pause there for a second. You think, do I have this right? You think that you might have hit somebody while you were driving but you don't know if you hit somebody? Well, that's the, compu- that's the obsession. You know, if you okay. hit a bump in the road, you think it's somebody. I it's see. Obsessive compulsive disorder is known as hit run, obsessive compulsive disorder. You know, I don't know if it would bring you relief, but you could find out, you know, check in with the, the local police. Was anybody hit by a car on such and such a date? And if they say, well, nope, they nobody was hit by a car, then you would that give you relief? No, I, I don't know if it would, and the psychiatrist tells me that it's not good to do that because that's what these people do to have this problem. They go back to the police and oh. ask them about it. You could get stuck with something you didn't even do. Yeah. Oh, we don't want that, that's for sure. So I don't have any skills in that department, Joe, psychiatry, psychology, et cetera, but it sounds like you had a question for me, though. What was that? Well, that was the question. Is anything I can do to get the relief from it? Uh, oh, I see. Okay. Well... I don't know from a clinical standpoint what a physician would tell you. Chances are you've you've heard from them on this issue. I would say follow your doctor's advice. Now, from an emotional standpoint in the feelings of being tormented by these compulsions and things like that, um, that's what I meant. I, I don't have any knowledge or experience or credentials in that field, so I would refer you to those who do. So a qualified psychiatrist would be able to help with that. There may be some medicines available. I don't know. There may be some, you know, life strategies you can use to help cope with those compulsions. I I wish I had something I could recommend to you, Joe. I, I don't. Now, obviously, I would say stay close to Jesus in prayer. Pray the rosary. Ask Our Lady to help you. Receive the sacraments. And maybe you're already doing all of those things. Those things I, I would recommend. But... From a clinical standpoint, I think you'd really have to follow the advice of a competent physician, a psychiatrist, okay. for example. Does that make sense? Yes, I've been doing that ever since I was young when it first happened. It's just Well, that's good. I, I can imagine it's been very trying for you. Well, how about this, Joe? I will ask everybody listening right now to add their prayers to yours, my own included, 
that God will give you some relief from this and that he will help you to carry this cross and make it a little bit, maybe a lot lighter than it is right now. That much we can do for sure. We'll pray for you, Joe. Thank you. Hang in there. Uh, let's go over to Michael now in Soledad, California. Good morning, Michael. Oh, good morning, Patrick. It's an honor to talk to you. Well, thank you, uh, sir. Patrick, I've got a, I've been seeing a lot like on this Facebook, their reels, they're showing people talking about they have a vision from God mm-hmm. about the three days of darkness that's supposed to take place. Mm-hmm. Yes. And my, my question is, is if there is going to be that three days of darkness, they say you have to cover all, I mean, could you just be in one room and cover one window or would you have to cover every window in your house? All and right. then the second question I want to ask you is, is, let's say you didn't do that. And you know, these, they the call them the Nephilim. Let's say they, they would come and take you and kill you. But as long as you believe in Jesus, if they kill you, would you still be able to go to heaven or, or if the Nephilim take you at that time, that means you're a sinner and, and you're, you'll be dying and destined to hell. Okay. Good question. So first thing to note is that these prophecies, these theories of three days of darkness are, they fall within the category known as private revelation. And so they're not obligatory. You don't have to pay attention to them if you don't want to. You don't have to believe in them if you don't want to. They carry no weight in themselves other than perhaps from somebody who said it. So somebody like St. Padre Pio, for example, or Blessed Anna Maria Taigi as another example. There have been some recognized saints who have talked about this. You're free to accept it. You're free to reject it. You're free to ignore it, what have you. The divine revelation in the Holy Bible, for example, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in apostolic tradition, that much we are obliged to hold to. And there are things in the New Testament, in the Gospels, for example, where Jesus talks about um, there will be a time that will come when the sun will be blocked out, and it will not give its light, and the moon will not give its light. So even in the New Testament, it, it has allusions to what we hear today known as the three days of darkness. So I'm proposing, number one, that this very well, this three days of darkness may very well correspond to what Jesus said in the Gospels about this time of darkness. So practically speaking now, as you watch these videos and you go to the blogs and you read the books and there's just a cottage industry of people making their money, earning their livings, by keeping other people whipped into a frenzy about the three days of darkness, my advice would be to ignore that. And here's why. It may be true. It may be true. Certainly what Jesus said will eventually happen because he is truth itself. So he's not going to deceive us. And let's assume that this is going to happen in your lifetime. Watching those videos and reading the books and going through the the blogs and all the speculation, it's not going to do you any good, spiritually speaking. If you know that there will be a time of great testing, then just be prepared, no matter when it may come, by loving God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is kind of my mantra. Do what Jesus said. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and and you don't do what I command you? What does he command us to do? to love each other, to serve the poor, to give alms, to pray, to stay in the state of grace, receive the sacraments, 
read the Bible, all those good things that the Lord is calling you to do. If you do those things and you're trusting in the Lord for your salvation and you love him and you're close to him and you're doing the things that you're supposed to be doing, it doesn't matter if the three days of darkness starts today at three in the afternoon because you'll be ready. You'll be ready for it. But if you, and maybe not necessarily you personally, Michael, but I'll use the rhetorical you, if you're wasting time with these books and these videos and all the stuff that, you know, maybe in terms of content, maybe accurate, but if you're getting bogged down and fearful and discouraged and obsessed about all this stuff, you won't be ready if the three days of darkness takes place this afternoon. You won't be ready for it because you will have been neglecting all those things that the Lord calls you to do in favor of this sort of um, a sideshow of all this other stuff. If it's real, great. When it happens, it happens. And Jesus is in charge. And if it's his will that you are living when this happens, so be it. That's the way I look at this. Now, what about the Nephilim? The Nephilim are mentioned in the book of Genesis as the, the sons of God that mated with the daughters of men. And for so long of a time, even many Catholics have assumed that that's referring to some kind of giant, some type of hybrid creature that's the, the combination of fallen angels mating with human women. Uh, I guess that's redundant, but you get the point. And that this gave rise to these giants, the men of old, the men of renown. None of that is what's, what that's referring to. St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, and others point out the sons of God are the righteous offspring of Adam and Eve's children, and most notably, we could assume that that would be Abel and Ham and the others. The, the daughters of men were was a term that was used for the descendants of Cain, the first murderer. He murdered his brother. He was banished. So he and his wife and, and their kids and their whatever people he had, they were banished and they moved out. And he was known as the unrighteous one. So that's what this is referring to. It's not some chimera of a demon mating with a woman producing some sort of exotic hybrid creature. That's not what it's referring to. So if you're hearing people tell you that the Nephilim are going to be wandering around neighborhoods and they say, hey, look, that guy's window is open or he's, he doesn't have his blinds closed. Let's grab that guy. I would just ignore that stuff. Uh, if it's true that there are demons roaming, and some statements say that, okay, Lord, protect me. Lord, you know I love you. And if you were to die in the three days of darkness for some reason like that, your question is, would you go to heaven? Well, if you love Jesus and you're trusting in him for your salvation and you're in the state of grace, of course you're going to go to heaven. Whether you fall down and hit your head or you get crushed by an alien you know, or any of those things. And the question of aliens is a whole other topic for discussion and polemics. But it doesn't matter whether you fall down and hit your head or you have a heart attack or you die in a tsunami or you, you know, whatever it may be, if you die in the state of grace, yes, you will go to heaven. So that would be my advice. Don't obsess over these things. And if it's causing you this kind of heartburn and, and concern, just shut off the videos, put down the books, 
Don't visit the web blogs. Not because I have anything against books and web blogs and videos. I mean, those are good in themselves. But for some people, this is very harmful to their spiritual life. So that's my advice. I have to take a break, though. Thank you, Michael. I'll be right back. Today, we'd like to thank Tammy, who's listening in Florida, for donating her 2016 BMW Z4. Cool. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. Welcome back to the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Have a question? Give Patrick a call. 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Patrick Madrid on Relevant Radio. I promised you earlier today that we talk a little bit about the young woman who did a video on TikTok in which she said that her father abandoned her mother and her siblings and herself when she was five years old, walked away from the family in order to pursue a career as a break dancer. And uh, it was a very sad kind of thing. And I felt as though she was using a bit of humor to mask her, her pain. Well, the dad saw that. And so he produced his own video in which he responds to some of the things that she said, puts a different light on things. And then she responded with a follow-up video of her own. Now, uh, this got a lot of traction. A lot of people saw it and had comments about it. And I would like to share with you the updates, and I'll do that tomorrow on this program. Uh, I mentioned that I would come back to it briefly on the show today, and so I am. But just be aware, there's more to the story and it's fascinating to see the two sides to a story. At first, you may think, well, that's really terrible. And then he comes back with his explanation. It seems like, well, maybe it wasn't so terrible. And then she comes back with her explanation. You think, well, maybe it really was as terrible as she said it was. And you'll find out the whys and wherefores. The reason this is, I think, beneficial is because this is human experience. And you've been in it yourself, where somebody tells a story about you, and you say, well, that's not what happened, or that's not what I was saying or doing or thinking. And it can be difficult at times to know what exactly is going on. So there's a sort of a microcosm of human experience and misunderstanding that we'll analyze and learn from. And we'll do that tomorrow. You're going to hear from these videos, the updates. Let's get back to the phones. Uh, Tim in Minneapolis, thank you for your patience and welcome. Hey, Patrick. Thanks for taking my call. How are you, sir? I am doing well, thank you. Happy to be of service. Thanks. Uh, so my question kind of sparked from a caller that called just a little bit ago about purgatory. Mm-hmm. And uh, we recently had put my father in hospice. He's dying of cancer. And okay. some of my uh, friends have told me that when he does get his uh, last rite, he has had the anointing of the sick. Make sure to ask the priest for the apostolic pardon. Now, that apostolic pardon, from what I know, isn't given unless it's asked for. And then, really, what does the Church view that apostolic pardon? Do they, mm-hmm. do they avoid purgatory with that pardon, or, or what, what is that? Yeah, so the apostolic pardon is a plenary indulgence that's granted to the person who is dying in the form of a blessing from the priest who has been delegated that authority by his bishop. Now, as I understand it, just anecdotally anyway, from talking to some friends who are bishops and many priests, uh, this is a matter of course that the bishops delegate this authority to give, they give it to their priests. So priests are 
their default is going to be when they go to give anointing that they would also impart the apostolic blessing. It may be in some places where the person would request it or the family might request it, but at least in many dioceses, it's part of the process. And the bishop tells the priest, you have the authority to give the apostolic blessing, so give it. So if maybe you're in that situation or a loved one is and the priest does not seem to be giving it, you can ask him and he'll give it to you or give it to the person. So that leads to the second question. Does that mean that you would avoid purgatory? The answer is yes, because the apostolic pardon is this plenary indulgence which remits the entirety of any penance that may need to be performed in expiation for the effects of sin. Jesus pays the penalty for sin, of course, but this, the sins that are forgiven have after effects. We call them the temporal effects due to sin. So this is the application of the superabundant merits of Jesus Christ and the Blessed Virgin Mary and all the body of Christ in heaven. And applying those merits to that person entirely wipes out the need for any penance and ergo any time in purgatory. So yes, that person would go directly to heaven. Now, it's still wise to pray for the soul of the person because in any right. given situation, we can't know with certitude that the person received that plenary indulgence. That's the goal of it. That's the idea behind it. But God, in his wisdom, may not apply it that way to any given person. So it doesn't mean that you shouldn't pray for Uncle Joe when Uncle Joe passes away. Do keep praying for him, even though he's received the apostolic pardon. You see what I mean? I do. And it, would, it, would it matter if the person isn't able to consciously know what's happening? It doesn't matter. Conscious awareness is not needed for this. Okay, that's, that's great. Uh, I, I really appreciate you answering my question, Patrick. You're welcome, Tim. I hope it brings you some comfort and some encouragement. Uh, let's go now to Anne in Las Vegas. Good morning, Anne. Good morning, Patrick. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to. Um, I recently watched a video. Um, I believe it was produced by Angel Studios, and it just, uh, it's very recent. It either came out late last year, even the beginning of this year. And it's called After Death, and it's about near-death experiences. And there's several people um, who um, talk about their experience on this show. Mm -hmm. um, many of them with the happy, see, heaven kind of experience. And then there were about three, I believe, who saw um, a vision of hell, or at least a, a very scary vision that they knew that they wanted to avoid at all costs. Okay. And most of these situations, the, the experiences that people had were, were pretty similar. They, they all, all talked about the same sort of thing, the, the white light. They, they saw Jesus. They talked about the colors, the music, just how everything was just so perfect and so beyond anything we could ever imagine, and that it all felt even more real there felt more like reality there than it does here on the earth on our in on earth mm -hmm. and but what i didn't there was something i didn't quite understand and i'm sure we can only understand so much without having one of these experiences or dying ourselves obviously but um they didn't ever only one person talked about their being uh, a judgment. And that was all he said. He says, and there will be judgment. But, but when they showed these experiences, whether it be the heaven or hell, they, they, 
it, because under my understanding, like pretty much once we die, we go straight to judgment. And these people mm-hmm. didn't seem to have that sort of experience. They had more of a, they saw family members, they saw Jesus, they got to ask him mm-hmm. questions. However, these people, yeah, however, these people were all, uh, they weren't going to die. They were going to come back to to life, to earth, and so they weren't ready to go to either one of these. No, I understand, Dan. You don't have to explain it anymore. I understand what you're driving at. So are you asking me, are these valid? Are these legit? And if so, how do they fit with what we know to be true? Is that what you're asking? I'm one, sort of. I'm wondering why they're not given, like, a judgment write-off. Why they're shown that they're going to go to heaven when we're all under the assumption that we're going to be judged first. I guess I was curious as to why they weren't taken right to a judgment versus, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. So the, the first answer that could explain that is that these aren't actual um, end of life experiences, that they are some, some kind of phenomenon out of body experiences. You know, we, we know that these are very widespread. So it's a real phenomenon. There's actually a book, if you're interested, it's called, Science in the Afterlife Experience, Evidence for the Immortality of Consciousness. And he looks okay. into all of these examples from a... And, and by the way, the author's name is Chris Carter, if you're interested. He, t- he takes into account reincarnation. What, how do we explain that? What are some of these other things? And one of my takeaways from reading this sort of scientific approach to this is that many of these things, uh, maybe most of them, are not really an encounter with the afterlife they very well may be the person's mind's conception of this, and in this altered state, this seeming dissociation from the body and floating above the body, things like that, it could simply be the person's own imagination. It's possible that some of these things could have some demonic influence involved. That's possible. I don't think that's probably as common. I I would think it'd be more common that it's the person's conscious ideas of heaven and hell and death and those things, and that's what they're seeing. Kind of like dreams. You know, when you see things in your dreams, it doesn't mean they're real. They seem real during the dream, but that's all it is. So if I had to guess, my explanation in answer to your question is, why don't these people go to judgment is because this isn't a real end-of-life experience with Mm -hmm. God. It's something in their imaginations. Okay, and that's that's what I was thinking too, which mm-hmm. kind of begged the question a little bit. I wonder how much um, validity, uh, that might not be the right word, or, mm-hmm. or I guess how much I put into the Authenticity, maybe? Authenticity, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't put much stock in it. Yeah, so there was like a little kid, he wrote a book called Heaven is Real, I forget his name, Yeah, and it was, everybody was, you know, tripping over themselves about how great this book was. Eh, a little boy had an experience, that that's not gospel, that's not divine, divine revelation, it's just what somebody went through, and that could be... I mean, for all of those things, it's interesting, and there are a number of great saints who did go through similar experiences. So St. Teresa of Avila, for Mm -hmm. example, and Mm -hmm. she definitely recognized that in her case that she was on her way to hell, believe it or not, and she was shown hell and where she would be in hell. So there are those that are consistent with divine revelation, even though they're not ones that get a lot of attention. 
Right. Okay. Thank you so much. I'm going to look to the saints probably more uh, with their stories and, and the Fatima oh, story you. that we know about that one as well, too. And so right. um, um, thank you. I, I appreciate your input. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome, man. Thank you. Important topic, that's for sure. Uh, if I can do this quickly, I will. Um, Philip in Los Angeles wrote me an unhappy email. Patrick, once again, I heard you questioning the sainthood of Pope Paul VI this morning on your show, as you have done in the past. I'll pause there. No, you did not. You did not hear me questioning his his canonization. Uh, I question the haste in which the church currently tends to go about canonization. Uh, he says, what evidence do you have that St. Pope Paul didn't deserve to be canonized? I don't have any evidence. Uh, what I did say was that he wasn't known during his lifetime. You know, it wasn't publicly observed that he was known for heroic virtue or anything like that. And he gives a number of other reasons. Um, but I simply say that he may, I mean, he's canonized. So far be it for me to say otherwise. But I think it happened a bit too hastily, if you ask me. Thank you. See you tomorrow.